Well, tonight uh, we've come to the end of 2 Samuel, uh, which I think is a bit sad. I don't know about you, but I always enjoy when we look at the Old Testament together, especially these great stories about David. Uh, so it's a bit sad to be coming to the end. But in another sense, you're sort of happy for David's sake, I think. Uh, you sort of want it to finish. Because uh, David gets this incredible high point about, you know, 10 or 11 chapters into the book. And then things just go bad for him. And it just keeps sort of descending more and more. And the conversation I've had over and over again with people in gospel teams that have been looking at uh, 2 Samuel is I just wasn't sort of aware that David was as bad as he was. That's the conversation that keeps coming up. People are sort of aware of the high points and aware of a couple of the obvious sins. But I think sometimes people get shocked by the extent of David's sin uh, and the reality that he actually is a sinner. So by the end of the story, you're sort of thankful it ends in a strange sort of way. You just want it to end for David's sake. You sort of think, oh, I wish it ended 15 chapters ago on a slightly higher note than it is now. But in any event, uh, in many ways, David's life is like every human life. It has its high points and it has its low points. It has sin. It has great acts of godliness. Uh, David ruled for 40 years in total. We read at the end there in 2 Kings chapter 2 over Judah for the first seven, if you remember the story. And then over the combined total kingdom of Israel for the last 33. And God did wonderful things through David. We must never forget that. He gave his people rest from their enemies. He established his kingdom to its high point in many ways in the Old Testament. But over time, as I say, we've just seen how flawed David is. We've seen him with all his sin and all his failings. And so at the end of his life, if you go to the second reading there in 1 Kings chapter 2, uh, we jumped ahead and just sort of treated, uh, cheated a little bit to have a look there. But at the end, do you notice David doesn't boast about his achievements? If you read the whole chapter, and you can read it later on, uh, you'll actually see that a lot of it is him inviting his sons to get even with his enemies which is a little bit disconcerting again. Uh, but even there, he doesn't boast about his achievements. All David can do at the end of his life is fall back on the promises of God. So at the end of his life, he goes back, and it's like he goes back to 2 Samuel 7, that great point where God promises, David, it won't be through you that I establish my eternal kingdom. It'll be one of your descendants. And so as he says to Solomon, remember God's promises. That's what he does. So as you read on and as Solomon takes over, we're meant to ask, is this the one? Is this the king who's going to rule forever? Is this the king God is going to use to save all the world? If you read on in 1 Kings, and you might have got a taste for this part of the Old Testament, you won't want to read on. Well, you'll quickly see as impressive as Solomon was, he had every failing of his father and a few more as well. And so we keep coming back to the main point of 2 Samuel. This whole book is aimed to point us forward to the one true king. whole point of 2 Samuel is to say David is not the one. We need someone better than David. And so we look forward to Jesus, the true Christ, the true son of God. And he is the one who will rule forever. He is the one who will give us the forgiveness we so desperately need. And he is the one who we need to bow down and worship. So the failure of David at the end of the story makes us sad in some sense. You never want to see a human being fall like David does. But it's also meant to make us realise just how wonderful our true king is. That's the point of this book. And as if to ram home the point, the final chapter of the book, chapter 24, yet again shows David warts and all, with all his impressiveness and all his failings. So let's get into it. Come with me back to chapter 24 of 2 Samuel. And it starts there at verse 1 really, really ominously. 
It says, the Lord's anger burned against Israel again. What's the really sad word in that verse? Again. It's the story of the Old Testament, isn't it? The Lord, despite all his grace, Israel sins and God's anger burns against them again. And that raises all sorts of questions for us, especially, well, why? Because sort of we want to know why. We want to know, well, what, what's the sin? Why do they deserve God's anger? But we're never told, are we? What we do know is God is righteous. God's anger and wrath is always deserved. Whatever the reason, the Israelites deserved what happens. Just by the by, that's an important reminder that God doesn't have to explain himself to us. Often you read in the Bible, you just don't know why God does what he does. And then people sort of try and apologise for God and justify, well, you know, maybe God does this and all that. No, God doesn't need us to apologise for him. He doesn't need us to justify him. Too many Christians try and explain away God's wrath and God's anger or other things we find uncomfortable. We always have to remember, if we've got a problem with something, the problem's with us, not with God. And the point here is, God was angry at Israel for their sin, And so therefore, Israel deserved what happened. And that's what drives all these events in chapter 24. So let's go on. Verse 1 again. It says, The Lord's anger burned against Israel again, and he stirred up David against them to say, Go count the people of Israel and Judah. I think that is one of the strangest verses you'll come across. God is angry against Israel. So God incites or stirs up David to do this horrible thing to them, which is to conduct a census. There you go. Byron's there nodding. Byron loves censuses. He's easily, you know. But that is the way God was written. Now, we'll think about why a census in a minute. What's even stranger is, is if you read in 1 Chronicles 21, so in 1 and 2 Chronicles, they tell the same story as 1 Samuel through to 2 Kings, but from a different perspective. But in there, it tells us it was the devil who incited David to do this. It was Satan who was at work through David to do this. Now, how can that be? How can it be both the devil behind this and God behind this? How can that be both in the Bible, if you like? How can it say God is in control of it if Satan is doing it at the same time? Well, this is that truth you see most clearly in the book of Job, if you know your Old Testament well. God is in control of everything, but God even uses Satan's evil efforts and the devil's evil plans to bring about his good purposes. In the same way, God is in control of everything, but he even uses our sin and our evil decisions to bring about his good purposes. This is so important to understand. God uses all of our choices and all of our decisions, both good and evil, to bring about his good plans for his children. But even though God does that, and this is sort of the mystery of it in the Bible, even though God does that and God is totally in control, we human beings, we are still responsible for all those decisions and for all those choices, good and evil. The fact that God uses them for good overall, the fact that they are part of God's plan overall, is never seen as an excuse for us to be able to say, well, God's in control, I did it, it doesn't really matter. No, God says, no, you are responsible for your sinful and evil and good decisions. We saw this in Genesis last year. Remember when we looked at Joseph last year, at the end of last year, same time as this? His brothers, remember the story? What did Joseph's brothers do to him? They, they threw him in a pit. 
They sold him into slavery. At the end of the story, it was only the fact that they had done that that meant that he was there to save them. And so Joseph says to them, it's on your outline, have a look, Genesis 50 verse 20. He says to his brothers, you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. He's not saying, so you did the right thing in throwing me in a pit and selling me to slavery and trying to kill me. He's saying, no, that was evil, what you did. But God was in control of it all and using it for the salvation of many people. Where is the moment in history where you see that most clearly, do you think? Where is the moment in history where you see human beings doing evil, but it is part of God's plan to bring about great good? Where do you see it most clearly? At the cross of Jesus. That's the most obvious point. These these people did awful things to Jesus. They were responsible for their decisions, for what they did, and yet it was part of God's plan since the beginning of time to save all of humanity. Look at how Peter talks about it, again on your outline, in Acts 2.23. It says, Though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. That is, even though it was all part of God's plan from the very beginning, even though that was the case, he then says, you, he's talking to the Jewish audience here, you used lawless people, the Romans, to nail him to a cross and kill him. Do you see the point he's making? Part of God's plan, the cross was always part of God's plan to save the world and yet he used your evil decisions to put Jesus to death. It's so important to understand this, God is in control of everything but that does not diminish our responsibility for all the decisions we make. So here David does the wrong thing and he gets horribly judged for it. The devil is at work in it but it's part of God's plan. God is using it for his purposes. Which brings us to this horrible thing that David did against all Israel, which was, you sort of expecting him to say, and he killed everyone, or he started a war with someone, or he did something horrible, and he took a census. Now we sort of think, so what? You know, you mightn't have enjoyed filling in the National Church Life Survey a couple of weeks ago, but it didn't really cause you any pain, did it? And earlier in the year, you might have been one of those people who got on Facebook and complained about your privacy being breached and whatever else when the government had their census. All they asked you was how old you are. I couldn't find any questions in there that counted for anything, so I didn't know what anyone was worried about. But anyway, you, but in the end, the government is doing a census for a good reason, aren't they? They're trying to work out where should we put hospitals? Where should we put schools? Where do we need more services and all this sort of stuff? That was not why they took censuses in the ancient world. Why did they take a census in the ancient world? Why did kings want to take a census in the ancient world? Two reasons. To work out if they could get any more money out of you. And secondly, to work out how many young men you had so that they could send them off to die for them in war. That was the only reason you took a census. And so people hated the idea of a census. Politically, it was a stupid thing for David to do. It's a surefire way to get people resenting the king. But David wants to do it. So he gets our old mate Joab. Remember Joab? Joab's been a great, lovely human being through 2 Samuel, hasn't he? He gets Joab to get to it. But even Joab says, this shows you how dumb the idea was. Even Joab says, this model of morality, he says, don't do it. And for once, he's actually got a good reason. Look at verse 3. Joab replied to the king, 
May the Lord your God multiply the troops 100 times more than they are while my Lord the King looks on. But why does my Lord the King want to do this? What Job's saying there is, for once he's been godly, why do you need to know how many men you've got, David, when every time you're in trouble, God raises up an army and kills your enemies? And, And sometimes you only need one person to defeat your enemies. Why do you care whether you've got 500,000 or a million or however many? Hasn't God done it every time in the past? David, this isn't just politically dumb. Joab is saying, David, this is ungodly. This is showing you don't trust God. That's why this census was sinful. That's why censuses in the Old Testament always seem to bring on God's wrath and judgment. God can use one man to defeat thousands. And in fact, we've just heard about this, if you did in your gospel team, back in chapter 23. All all in preparation for this sermon, I kept wanting to preach on 2 Samuel 23. It's my favourite chapter in the whole Bible. And Troy even said, yeah, do it. But I overcame the temptation of my brother Troy. But the reason I wanted to preach on 2 Samuel 23 is just have a look at this. Jump back there now if you haven't read it already. This is why David doesn't need to count how many soldiers he's got. Because he has Josheb Bashabeth. Have a look at chapter 23, verse 8. Josheb Bashabeth, the tack, I can never say that, the tack Shemanite was chief of the officers. And what does it say? He wielded his spear against 800 men that he killed at one time. How good is that? Don't you want to see the movie version of that? Now, we don't know how he did it. I think he must have got sort of between two rocks and they came to him and they were probably stupid like the bad guys in the movies. I don't know. But, you know, and he killed them one at a time with his spear. 800 men. Job saying, you've got Joshua Bashabeth. Why do you care? And then, go down a bit further, my favourite one. Where is it? Verse, uh, verse 11. Shammah, son of Agi, the Hararite, the Philistites had assembled in formation where there was a field full of lentils. You know, it's going to be a good story when it's a field full of lentils, don't you? Maybe he had a problem, I don't know. Anyway, um, but Shammah really wanted to defend the lentils and he struck down the Philistines. And the Lord, what do you need this for? You've got Shammah. And then, my be- chat, verse 13, talks about these three warriors who David just happens to say one time, I'm a bit thirsty. And so they go on this mission and kill all these Philistines and bring back a glass of water for David. And he's point, this is, that's why chapter 30, 23 is there, I think. It's saying, look at these incredible things God does through these 37 men. Your 37 mighty warriors, David. What do you care how big your armies are? And doesn't God have a history right through the Old Testament of taking just a few to defeat millions? You know, that's the way God works. But David says, no, I want you to do it. And since there were no online forms, Joab and his men have to walk around the kingdom. It takes them months and they come back after 10 months with the job done. And it says 800,000 fighting men in the northern part of the kingdom in Israel and another 500,000 in the south in Judah. It's a bit confusing there because some people say, how could there be that many people? at that time but the word for thousand is the same word as for a military unit so it could have been less than that but either way it's a lot of people but then with the results in David's conscience troubles him look at verse 10 David's conscience troubled him after he had taken a census of the troops he said to the Lord I have sinned greatly in what I've done now Lord because I've been very foolish please take away 
your servant's guilt. It seems that David now finally realises, yes, I was acting like a pagan king. I wasn't trusting God. That's why David feels he sinned so grievously. Uh, I should have been trusting God, but here I am like a pagan king counting my troops and working out my plans instead of talking to God about his plans. But the key here is, there are points in in the story where you must not follow David's example. But this is one of those points where David is right to follow. The key here is, David recognises his sin straight away. He doesn't try and rationalise it and say, well, all the kings were taking censuses. He just recognised his sin and then he did what we all need to do with our sin. David talked to God about it. It's actually a model of the right response to sin in our life. He confessed his sin to God and asked God to deal with it. David has his low points, but this is one of those moments where David is a model for us. And it's like we're told to do in 1 John chapter 1. Again, take out your outline, have a look with me. It says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Personal confession of our sin to God is an absolutely vital part of our Christian life and of our prayer life. You know, here here in church sometimes we have the confession prayer on the screen and we collectively confess our sin to God and that's a good thing to do. That's only ever sort of a token in a way, a sort of a model of what we should be doing individually. Every time we pray, we should be saying to God, here are the areas where I have failed to love you as I should. Here are the areas where I failed to love others as I should. Here are the areas where I failed to do what is right. But I thank you for the forgiveness I have in Jesus. That is the way we approach God. We don't come with pride. We come as sinners confessing our sin to God. And David is a great model of that. Let's get back to what happens next. The next morning, David gets a very different message from the Lord. It wasn't that God would not forgive David. He would. But remember, this all came about because of God's anger against Israel's sin. It's not just about David. God is angry at all of Israel at this point for their sin. So even if God is willing to answer David's prayer and forgive David at this point, he needs to deal with this whole situation. God still needs to bring his righteous judgment on Israel. So the next morning, the prophet Gad comes to David with a message from God. And it's really quite suspenseful. Whoever watches those game shows, you know, like at five o'clock on TV and all that sort of thing. Back, back in the old days, the game shows always had doors. And you had to choose door one, door two, or door three. Sue Fleming's laughing. She knows the game shows I'm talking about. You always had to see, and behind door one would be the car. Behind door two would be the lounge suite. And behind door three would be, you know, and if you pick door three, you're really disappointed. You know, that sort of idea. But here, there are no good doors for David to choose from. Because behind every door is God's judgment. There's no good option. So option one, if you look there, three years of famine on the whole nation. Option two, three months where there's civil war, where you're running from your enemies like you did from Saul and like you did from Absalom in the past. Or option three, three days of some awful plague. Whichever one he chooses, I think it's the same outcome. The the point is, thousands of people are going to die. 
whether it is from famine or whether it's from war or whether it's from a plague, the only difference is one will be slow, one will be medium term and one will be really quick. Now remember, this is not a judgment on Israel for David's sin. This judgment was already coming from verse 1. God was angry at Israel. The census was just God's way of bringing it about. Now why God chose to do it this way, including David in the choice, we don't know. Some questions we don't get answered. But David is so distressed, he can't choose. And so he basically says, God, you do what you must, but then he just begs God for mercy. And so God acts. If you don't find chapters like this in the Bible shocking, then there's something wrong with you. You you watch too many R-rated movies, I don't know, but your your heart is hardened. It's meant to be shocking. God acts and his anger is awful. He sends a plague on Israel, something like, you know, the Black Death or the Bubonic Plague or something like that, and 70,000 or at least 70 units of men are killed. It's awful. But then God does have mercy. And you see it when this strange incident happens in verse 16. So look there with me. Suddenly this angel comes out of nowhere. It says, Then the angel extended his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it. In the Old Testament, often when God brings his judgment, like in the Exodus on Egypt... Uh, or on Israel at points like this, it's often an angel or a messenger from God who comes to judge. Did anyone see that, uh, the Bible show on TV a couple of years ago? I only turned it on for one, like, 15-minute point, and it was at a point of judgment, and they had the angels of God were like ninjas with two swords on the back. Did other people see that? And people said, oh, that's not very realistic. It's actually quite realistic. It's a, at that point, it was quite realistic. God sent these angels, the angel of death, to bring about his judgment. Now, I don't think the people saw the angel standing there. It's more God sees this, and perhaps David did, I don't know. Uh, They just experienced the judgment, as awful as it was. But David was aware of what was going on. And so as the angel has been all around Israel, comes to strike Jerusalem, the biggest city, the capital, the centre of it all, God steps in. Look there at verse 16. It says, But the Lord relented concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough, withdraw your hand now. One thing I just want you to notice there, do you notice it's God who relents? It's not that at that point David was even begging. David steps in later on, but God relents. And I think the inference is the full three days hasn't even happened yet. It's like God has said, this is how much the judgment is deserved, but he relents at this point. It's interesting, we like to apply our misguided morality to God. It's amazing how many people sit in judgment over God on things like this. And so we get shocked by the awfulness of God's judgment. We go, oh, this is terrible, and how could this happen? Why is that? Because deep down, we don't really believe that sin is as serious as God says it is. Romans 6.23 in the New Testament, what does it say? For the wages of sin is death. You see, we get shocked when God brings his judgment on people. But actually, the Bible tells us every sinner deserves God's judgment. 
The incredible thing is that God is merciful, not that God is wrathful. You see, all, we all deep down think my sin is not that serious, which is actually a terrible thing to think. Why? Because that says Jesus didn't really have to die. You're actually, when we say my sin is not that serious and I don't deserve death, well, why did he have to send his son? to die for us if our sin is not that serious. So we get shocked by the judgment, but the amazing thing here is God's mercy. We are never told the sin of Israel. Do you notice that? They never let us know what it was. From their track record, we can guess some awful options. At different points, they sacrificed their children to idols. They're involved in all sorts of horrible things. Whatever it was, in God's eyes, Israel deserved to be destroyed but God relented God had mercy see the truth of God's judgment please listen very carefully to this the truth of God's judgment is no one ever receives worse than they deserve from God there is no one who will ever be able to say when they stand before the judgment seat of God I got worse than I deserved what's incredible is how many will be able to say I did not deserve God's mercy, but I received it. If you know Jesus and you know his forgiveness. But now in the story, we come back to David. And as we finish, we get told two more incidents about David. So come with me, both of which show him in a good light, just to finish, which is nice. Because while these people were suffering, David was pleading with God on their behalf. So look at verse 17. It says, when David saw the angel striking the people, he said to the Lord, look, I am the one who has sinned. I am the one who has done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's family. Now, David is wrong in so many ways here. He gets it basically totally wrong here. And yet he's somehow admirable for it, I think. Because, first of all, it wasn't his sin that was responsible for all this judgment. David, maybe in his pride, thought it's my sin that's caused all this. But no, it was the sin of all Israel that caused it. Uh, These sheep were not innocent. More than that, David deserved God's judgment anyway. If you think about it, how can a sinner pay the price for the sin of thousands of other sinners? But even so, David is admirable, isn't he? He says, I am the king. I am the shepherd of this flock, so I am willing to lay down my life for my sheep. And I think you would have to be deliberately blind to not see the way that this points us forward to Jesus, wouldn't you? Unlike David, though, Jesus was innocent. And unlike David, Jesus could take the punishment for all of us that our sin deserves. Because that's the thing, we deserve God's wrath and God's judgment, all of humanity does. But we have a king who, like David, was willing to take the judgment upon himself in our place. But unlike David, was able to do something about it. See, this points us forward yet again to how wonderful our true king is. Because he could stand in our place and take the wrath of God at the cross that we deserved. And that brings us to the final incident in the whole book, in the book of 2 Samuel. Do you see the throwaway line there at the end of verse 16 that told us where the angel was standing when God said enough? said he was at the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. 
we sort of think, well, who cares? But now we're going to see why that's important. Because that night the prophet Gad comes to David again. He says, go to that place. Go to the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite, the place where God showed his mercy and set up an altar to God. And so David straight away obeys God and does it. But the problem was that this little bit of land in Jerusalem was still owned by a Jebusite. They weren't Jews, they weren't Israelites, they, weren't, they were one of the people who were living there before David conquered it. So you have this funny scene where Arauna, I always think he sounds like a Hawaiian rather than a Jebusite, but anyway, Arauna, I just like saying his name, says, what does my king want? And it's this funny little interplay. David says, I want to buy this threshing floor off you to build an altar to the Lord. Arauna says, we well, can have it for free and I'll even throw in an ox and, and a bit of wood and you can have the lot all for nothing. David says, no, I want to pay you for it. This is like the reverse of every negotiation I've ever had. When someone offers me something for free, I just say, is there any catch? No, all right, give it to me. But So they're like arguing with each other to work out who can pay more. And eventually David says, here's 20 ounces of silver. And then he makes the sacrifices to God. That's all very interesting, but there's two things I want to point out. Two things, why this little story is here. The first is, for God's anger to be dealt with, a sacrifice needed to be made. Look at verse 25. It says, he built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel ended. This is really, really important because this is a mistake I hear people making more than just about any other mistake in understanding God. God does not just forgive. God does not just forgive. God is merciful, but God is also just and righteous. God wants to forgive, but God has to punish sin. For God's anger to be turned aside, a sacrifice had to be made. That is the point of all the sacrifices in the Old Testament. You know when you read the book of Leviticus or the book of Exodus and they're killing lambs and they're killing goats and they're killing pigeons and they're killing oxes? It's not just because they had a good butchery trade going or something like that. It's because for God to, to deal with our sin, justice has to be done. Blood had to be spilt. And that was the point of all those sacrifices. God's justice demands that someone has to die. And so those lambs and those oxen and all those other things were killed so that people did not have to die. People say, why can't God just forgive if he wants to? Well, it's because God had promised that justice demands that sin must be paid for. So the lamb or the goat was called a sacrifice of atonement. As a, it died as a substitute for the sins of the people. Because the blood of a lamb can never pay for the sins of all the world. Can it? It just can't. It was only ever meant to be a symbol. Just like the death of a sinner like David couldn't pay for the sins of the world. It was always a symbol pointing forward to that great day when God would deal with our sin once and for all. Do you remember what they called Jesus right at the start of John's Gospel? As he was walking to be baptised and what did they say? Here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
They were saying, here is the one who is going to die to pay the price for the sin of all humanity. That's why we don't kill goats and sheep at the front of church anymore. I, I for one, am thankful for that. That's why we don't have an altar. Never call that thing an altar. If I had my way, it wouldn't be here. But it's a communion table. It's not an altar. We don't have altars because you kill sacrifices on altars. That's why we have a communion table. So when someone's getting married in here, don't say, oh, they're up before the altar. Don't say it. It's not true. It's a communion table. See, we don't need to make sacrifices anymore. We say, so what? We haven't made sacrifices for, you know, ever that I've been alive. But you see, before the time of Jesus, every human being on earth knew, I must make sacrifices. Every culture in the world knew, I must make sacrifices to turn aside the anger of God or the gods as they mistakenly might have thought but because Jesus has paid the price we do not need a sacrifice anymore his is the sacrifice once and for all and that's why look on your outline Romans chapter 8 verse 1 that's why therefore no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus see praise God for the sacrifice that really matters the death of Jesus but that leads us to the last thing I want to point out in this funny little incident. And that was that whole haggling moment. Why was David so insistent that he had to pay for it? Why not just take it for free when the guy offered it? Well, there's two answers to that, I think. Firstly, this place that he bought was where they were going to build the temple in a few years' time. And so I think in God's providence, it was really important that it not be land that they could say, you stole that. It was land that they'd paid for. It was Israelite land. So that's one reason it's here. But I actually think the main reason, and David, the reason David wouldn't take it for free, is there in verse 24. So look with me. It says, The king answered Arauna, No, I insist on buying it from you for a price, for I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. That's why. The whole point of a sacrifice is that it costs you something. It's not a sacrifice otherwise. The whole point of it is it cost me something. That's why God was so angry at the Israelites, you remember in the Old Testament, when they would bring their lamb with one eye and two legs to sacrifice. The lamb they wasn't going to live anyway. Or when they'd bring the goat that they were never going to use for, for breeding. God would say, don't you give me your second grade animals. You give me the best lamb you've got. That's the one you should give to God. That's the sacrifice. God deserves the best, not the leftovers. Now, the wonder of the gospel, of course, there he is again. The wonder of the gospel is, of course, that in the end, the sacrifice that paid for our sins, what did it cost us? What did it cost us? Your answer is correct. It cost us nothing, but it cost God everything. See, the sacrifice that paid for our sins, the death of Jesus, cost God everything, and yet it's free to us. Jesus was the lamb without blemish, and he died at great cost, but he took the cost, not us. But now, as people who know that, what do we offer God? If we've come to know the wonderful forgiveness of Jesus... What is our sacrifice that we offer to God? Look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Last thing we'll look at. 
It says, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. See, the Christian who knows what Jesus has done for them says, now, God, I give you my life as a sacrifice. That is the sacrifice we give to God, not to pay for our sins, not to earn God's love. God already loves us and he's shown that in Jesus. Jesus has paid for our sins, but we do it because we know the love of God and we know what he has done for us. And that can be costly as we give things up in this world, but that is the thing. It is not a sacrifice. We're not living out Romans 12. It's not a sacrifice if it doesn't cost us anything. But the Christian says, well, it's actually no sacrifice at all compared to the one Jesus made for me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful book of 2 Samuel and all that it's had to teach us. And we thank you most of all for the way it points us forward to our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the way he is the one true sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. And so, Father, we pray that as people who know him and trust him, and so have had our sins paid for, we will now offer our lives to him as living sacrifices. And we pray this in his name. Amen.